Welcome to the Branches podcast. Branches is a community of faith, hope and love in the South Orange County. We are a church for people who don't go to church. If you'd like to learn more about our faith or our community, visit our website at branchesoc.com. If you don't know me, I've been gone for a while. My name's Boog. If you do know me, you probably forgot my name. I'm Boog. And it's good to be back. And so with all my time off, I've had a lot of time to think. And I've come um, to be reminded um, that I'm a control freak. And during that time of prayer, praying, listening, um, I also was reminded that you are control freaks. Not as bad as me, but you are. And so for the next few weeks, we're going to talk about control. Um, how we try to take it, our lack of control, what causes our desires to want to grab that control. Um, and when I was thinking about this and wrestling with this, I was thinking about um, when I first became aware of me trying to grab control. And when I, it's been my whole life, I, I come from a, a long line of control freaks. But when I was in, I just graduated from college. And I was a youth pastor, and I was really excited to be able to, to take these kids and, like, you know, develop this group and pour into them and, and to see God change their lives. And to a large degree, I just wanted to be really good at it, right? You want to you wanna be good. You want people to think you're good. And so I, I planned this mountain biking trip, and it was a smaller youth group at that time. And so I, you know, got the trucks and, and found the mountain bikes because you know, nobody had mountain bikes, so I had to do all of these. But... I developed a skill of being a organizer because I wanted to go well, because I wanted things to be in control. I wanted things to be, to go the way I wanted them to go. That's what you want to happen, right? You want things to move the way you want them to move. And so I got him up there, and the guy that was there before, he was a volunteer, and he was overseeing the youth group, and just the greatest, most mellow guy, Chris George, and he came up with me, and um, I'm like 23 at the time, 22, and so he came up, and he's 30, 31, and he's laid back. And so we get up there, and we got all the kids ready, and we get their helmets on, and we got the exact amount of bikes to match the exact amount of kids and leaders to go. But some of the bikes start breaking down before we've even left. Some brakes, some chains. I can't remember all the details. All I remember is that I completely lost it. Like, no, this can't happen! And literally getting loud and freaking out to the point where... I realized I was spiraling out of control, but there was nothing I could do about it. And I'd look over at this guy, Chris George, and he was just calm. And I remember in the midst of my freaking out, I was thinking, how is this guy so calm? And that was when I realized something's wrong with me. Like, why? And I didn't understand at that time, but I've seen it happen many times since then. It's not like this has disappeared. I've just learned to manage it a little bit more. But I've come to the realization that I want things to go the way I want them to go. And um, I, I really appreciate all the prayers. I know you say that, like, oh, I really appreciate your prayers. But I really do appreciate your prayers and your thoughts and the way many of you have reached out to try to support us during this time. If you don't know, um, I'm sick. And so I'll give you the update because I know you ask and, and you want to know. So I have a disease called rheumatoid arthritis, and I got it pretty bad. And what it does is your body attacks your body. Doesn't make much sense, does it? They don't know where it comes from. 
They don't know how to get rid of it. All they try to do is give you drugs to make it kind of lessen. And so what's happened since then is that the rheumatoid arthritis attacks your joints primarily. It's one of the autoimmune diseases. Mine has also attacked my lungs. So I have rheumatoid lung. Yay! Uh, That wasn't in the plans either. And so in the midst of this, I'm being reminded that things aren't going the way I planned them to go. And I've become keenly aware, and I've known this even before the mountain biking trip, but I'm realizing I'm not in control. And it's a very frustrating place to be. Because we have these goals, these desires, these plans, and when they don't go the way that we want them to, we kind of freak out. And the Lord has really been good to me. And what I want us to look at this morning especially is that when we're hit with adversity and suffering or disappointment or loss, it's not necessarily bad. Now, I'm not going to say this is good, but what I've come to believe is that it's neutral. And we'll get into that a little bit more. We're going to look into and we're going to see what the Bible has to say about that. But I know that you know what I'm talking about here. I know that you understand to some degree what it is to want to be in control. I have someone that I look up to, uh, that I listen to, that said this about us. He said, it's not that we want to be in control. It's that we hate to be out of control. And so we find different ways to grab control or to grab um, possession of the way we want things to go because otherwise we have to face the reality and the fear that we're not in control. And that's a scary place to be. But as I've gone through this, I want to encourage you and say, you know what? If you will surrender to the Lord and trust in him, then you will mount up with wings like eagles. You will run and not grow weary and you will walk and not faint. It may not happen now, but it will happen. And there's all kinds of ways we've been trained to be in control. We've been brought up to manage our environment. And I was kind of wrestling with this and looking at this um, because we have the power to get what we want. We, We live, for the most part, most of you live in California. You live in Southern California. You live in the United States. You live in the West. We are the best at getting control. We have amazing medical care. And if you don't like it, you just, go to, you just go down the street to the next one. You don't like that doctor, you go to this one. You don't, you don't like it in this state, you go to that state. You have the ability, you have so much in front of us. Our education is ridiculous. Oh, you don't like this school? Then put in to go to this school. You don't like that school? Go to this private school. You don't like that? Get a loan, go to that school. Um, our entertainment, it is ridiculous. Some of you right now are probably being entertained. You got your phones open and you're watching a great movie right now. Or you're getting ready for your fantasy football draft. Like, we have so much control. We have, um, we have comfortable homes. You want a single story? You want a double story? You want a backyard? You can't afford it? It doesn't matter. You'll find someone that will give you a loan. We'll figure it out. We have climate control in our cars. Think about that. We just got, um, we had these old cars. We got these new cars. I'm amazed at all this stuff's in there. All of a sudden, it's connecting to my phone. And I'm talking to people while I'm driving and I'm listening to music. And then now it's giving me directions on where to go. We can put motors 
on our bicycles. I was in Dana Point, and I was walking to meet someone, and I said, there's a whole store just for bikes with motors on it. So you don't even have to sweat anymore. You can just and just go where you want to go. I have all these friends that are going to lowers all the time going, look at my fancy bike. They don't even sweat anymore. We can go to the movies, and you can get a cocktail and a salad. Let that sink in. It's funny, but at the same time, think about that. Look at what we do. We are trained consumers, but we're not trained servants. And as I've been wrestling with this and going through this, and I've been thinking um, especially about Christ and trying to walk with him, and what does it look like to walk in his way, like you've been studying over the past few weeks. And Philippians 2 is a place where I lean on. And Philippians 2 says this. Have this attitude in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. What that saying is that Jesus, who can have control, willingly handed it over. The Son of God, when he came, willingly handed over his divine power to not be in control. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant or a slave and being made in the likeness of us, which means he took the nature of a servant like us. But some of us don't want to accept that identity. No, there's no way I could be a servant. There's no way I could be subservient to someone else. There's no way I could not be in control. I am the master of my own domain. But Jesus took the correct identity of a human. He submitted. He realized who we were and took his place like one of us. And Paul says that we need to have this same attitude. And yet we're trained consumers, not mature servants. Because we are not trained that way. And as the people of God, we need to know that battle is happening within us. And we need to win it. And, we, and one of the ways we also try to grab control is we try to surround ourselves with people that look like us, sound like us, play like us, and think like us. Because if not, if we're surrounded by people that are different from us or think differently from us, then it starts to mess with the way we think things should be. I like what James 4.1 says. It's a verse that I've held on to a lot because, like I said, I like things to go the way I want them to. I want people to think the way I think. I want people to, they don't necessarily need to look like me and dress like me, but think the way I do. But James 4.1 says this, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Have you ever thought about that? And the Bible's very clear about it. Like, ask the question, what causes fights and quarrels among each other? Like, why do we fight with each other? Whether it be in a church, whether it be with your neighbors, whether it be with your wife, whether it be with your husband, with your kids, your parents, your coworkers. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you they come because the things that the way we want things to go the way we think things should be when they don't happen then we start to fight because it should go the way that we see it because we're the masters right 
but we need to have the same attitude as Christ to be servants, not only of God, but of each other, and to care enough to listen and to let go of control even with each other. And the problem is with so much control and power, and we have a lot of control and power, and with this much power as Westerners, it makes us so vulnerable to disappointment. Like one of the biggest questions we always ask is, why does God allow suffering? Which is another way to say, why does God not let things go the way we think they should go? Because if suffering's neutral, it's not bad or good, what we're saying is, why isn't God doing the things the way I think they should go? Now, true, there is injustice, and that's a separate time. We'll talk about that. But I'm talking about when things don't go the way we want them to, when things go to the right or to the left, and they don't go the way we think they should, such as with cancer, divorce, unemployment, death. Control is an illusion. We're not in control. And that's why we look away from a story like this one of Hannah Ruth Overton. Has anyone ever heard of Hannah Ruth Overton? No, neither did I. But during my time away, I've been able to read a lot. And I've been reading um, from a book uh, from 2013, uh, The Essential Non-Required Reading. And it has all these essays and poems and news reports. And in it, it was sharing about this woman named Hannah. Um, They have five kids, her and her husband, and they adopted a boy at four. Uh, Well, they didn't adopt him yet, actually. He was a foster child. And he came from a family where his mom was a meth addict. And she was taking several other drugs. And so the courts decided that she just couldn't take care of him, and she didn't want to. And she was pregnant when she had him. Um, And so he was in the foster program, and nobody could take care of him. And so they took him in. And she already has five kids. She's part of this church in Corpus Christi, uh, a very influential, amazing church. And this family took on this boy with a lot of physical and mental issues. Why? Because of the love of God pushed them to do this. So they took in this boy, and he had an eating disorder. And I don't know how to pronounce it. It's either pika or piku. But basically, if he were to eat, when he finished eating, he was still hungry. He would just keep eating. In fact, he'd eat things that weren't even food. He'd eat cardboard or foam. He would just eat all the time. And so that's pretty difficult when you already have five kids, and this kid's never satisfied. And so um, one time, one night, uh, he just kept eating as usual, and he got sick. And, she, you know, your kids get sick. You're like, oh, it's the flu. She had five kids. She's used to this. She's, she's a trained, take care of your kids who are sick. So she's going through the protocols of what you do, like check his temperature, check this, check this. And he just wasn't getting better. And it got to the point where they're like, well, we've got to take him to the emergency room. And you know what's pretty bad when you take him to the emergency room? When you have your first kid, if they're like sniffle, you're like, let's go. Once you've got five kids, it's like, forget it. I'm sure they're going to recover the next day. So it's pretty bad at this point for a veteran mom to take him. So she takes him to the hospital with a husband. And when they get there, um, they find that he has sodium poisoning. Now, to have sodium poisoning, you have to have an un godly amount of salt and so nobody knows how he got this much salt but when he comes in they immediately assume that it must have been the mom that did it or the parents because how else could this kid get sodium so she ends up getting taken to court 
She gets up taken to court, and she gets up getting sent to jail. And the law in Texas says that this, is, that this deserves life in prison. If my kid were to get sick, and I were to take them, I would never assume that that was a possibility. Things went absolutely haywire. And, and all of the people on the outside are like, wait, what's going on here in the justice system? And, and I'm reading through it, and I'm not going to take you through all the details, but if you were to go through the details, you don't want to look at this. You don't want to look at this situation because you're like, this is not the way things are supposed to go. This is not fair. This isn't the way things should be. This seems out of control. I don't even want to look at this because the possibility of that scares me to death. And at the time that this was written in 2013, she was still in jail, seven years later. And they're going to court, and they're doing these appeals. And we don't want to see these things because it reminds us that we're not in control. But I want to encourage us this morning. Not that you're in control, but if you surrender to him and walk with him, and choose to understand that we can't trust ourselves or anybody else but trust in God, then you will see God move. Not on your time frame, but you will see God. And the Bible is filled with these stories, but the one that I want to focus on is with Joseph. And I know when I told you to turn to Genesis, you're like, "Uh uh-oh, we're hitting the Old Testament. Oh, this is going to be boring. The Old Testament is anything but boring. It's difficult to understand at times, but it is not boring. So if you could open up uh, to Genesis, and we will start in um, 37. And so, (coughs) if you don't know much about Joseph, um, there are the four patriarchs, which means there's Abraham, then he had his son Isaac, um, who uh, he went to go sacrifice because he thought the Lord told him to, but the Lord came in and said, no, I just want to make sure you love me. Then Isaac had his uh, son Jacob. I mean, they all had multiple sons, but the next one is Jacob, who they end up giving the name Israel. So when you talk about the people of Israel, it means the people underneath Jacob. And then Jacob had um, 12 sons, and his 11th son was Joseph. And in 37, it says that... Um, In verse 4, it says, when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than the rest. Like, it was obvious. Jacob made it obvious that he liked Joseph better than all of his other kids. Not a wise decision. And Joseph, at the age of 17, had grown up in this, and so he started to absorb this. He's a good man, but he's also only 17, and so um, he has this vision, and his his brothers already resent him. They can't stand him because he's the favorite. And so he has this dream, and in this dream and in this vision, he has it several times, he sees all of his brothers bowing down before him, including his parents, as if he's a king. And so at the age of 17, he's not very bright. He actually shares this story with them. Hey, guys, you're not going to believe this. I had this dream. And you know what happened? You're worshiping me. That didn't go over so well, to the point that they were so angry at him that they took him out when he went out to visit them when they were out in the fields and they decided to kill him. Now, I know he's a punk, but that does not fit the crime. 
you do not kill your brother. That's like way over the top. So they throw him into a pit. One of the brothers, the oldest one's like, oh, if he dies and I'm the oldest, I'm going to get blamed for it. So I'm going to come back and pull him out. But they, the other brothers had kind of schemed and instead found a way to put him into slavery. So they sold him to some Midianites coming through and sold him into slavery. Again, seriously? You sell your brother into slavery? But that's what they did. Now, at this point, this guy Joseph, do you think he's asking um, God, why is this happening to me? Are you serious? Is this really going on? All I did was, even if he understood, oh, I probably shouldn't have shared that, this does not match. This is not fair. This is not the way it should go. And so he sold into slavery. And then in chapter 39, it says that he had been taken to Egypt, because the Midianites went to Egypt, and they um, sold him to a man named Potiphar. Uh, He was an officer of the Pharaoh, who was the king, and a captain of the guard. And it says here in verse 2, the eternal one was with Joseph. And he became successful in his own right as a slave within the house of his Egyptian master. Now we can read this, and you start going into all the good stuff. Oh, so God was with him, and he gave him favor. He's a slave. So if I'm reading this, I'm thinking, well, God, if you're with him, then why is he a slave? Think about that. If the eternal one was with Joseph, then why is he in slavery? Because if he's with him, wouldn't he have a better circumstance than being in slavery? But he's with Potiphar. Potiphar could not help, and says this in verse 3, Potiphar could not help but notice that the eternal one was with Joseph. And he caused everything Joseph did to prosper about anything that was in Joseph's care because the eternal one was with him. But, as continues to happen in Joseph's life, he's overseeing this house, he's in charge of everything for Potiphar, and now he's getting a little bit older, and his shoulders are getting broader, he's getting taller, his jaw's starting to go out, and so Potiphar's wife's like, he's a really good-looking dude. I don't know what was going on at home, but it wasn't good. And so she starts to um, try to seduce Joseph. And he's like, I'm not going to do that. Like, your, your master, your husband, has put me in charge of everything. I'm not going to do that. I don't want to dishonor you, and I don't want to dishonor him. I'm not going to do it. But yet she continues to push and push and push to the point where she comes into the house one time and just goes and grabs his clothes and pulls them off of him. So his outer garment, she pulls him off, and he just bolts. He just runs. He's like, this woman's not going to take no. She's actually physically grabbing me now. So he takes off running, and she just goes, all right, fine. He tried to rape me. And she pulls in all the other workers at the place, and they all come in. And then when the husband comes home, she says, look, he tried to rape me, and I, I have his clothes to prove it. And so Potiphar believes his wife. And so what does he do to Joseph? Throws him in a jail, into the king's jail, which is the worst jail of all. Verse 20, so Potiphar, Joseph's master, put him into prison and locked him up in the place where the king's prisoners were confined. Joseph remained there for a time, but the eternal one, God, but God remained with Joseph and showed him his loyal love and granted him favored status with the chief jailer. So now that he's in jail, it says that in verse 22, the jailer put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners, just like Potiphar put him in charge of all of his property. Again, if God is with Joseph and shows him his loyal love, I bet Joseph is saying, just like at least I would say, 
hey, I appreciate the, the, your presence and all, but doesn't that mean I shouldn't be in jail? Because if you're with me, then why am I in this situation? This doesn't match how things are supposed to go. If I'm in this adversity, if I'm in this suffering, if I'm in this distress, then you must not be with me, right? Because if you were with me, I wouldn't have this. That's not the way life works. My situation, I love this story of Joseph because it reminds me that God is still present even when my circumstances aren't the way I want them to be. And I am not wise enough to know how they are going to go. And we're going to see that play out in Joseph's life. And this is all through the word of God, but we're just looking at Joseph's life right now. So then, while he's in jail, um, a couple of the king's um, workers, one's a cupbearer, one's a baker, the pharaoh, they're thrown in jail. They make the pharaoh upset. I don't know what they did. They come in. One is the one that's supposed to bring the cup to him, taste it, make sure he doesn't die. The other one bakes his uh, cupcakes or whatever they ate at that time. And so they come into jail and they have these horrible dreams. So, and in the Egyptian culture, when you have a dream, they believe that it's a revelation. And, but you have to have a special gift to interpret it. So they're looking. The Egyptians always look for people that can interpret these. That's why they have magicians and others that they think can maybe interpret these. Well, Joseph, who's in charge of everything in the jail, sees them and hears about their horrible dreams. And he says, do you want them interpreted? And they go, can you interpret it? And he says, well, no, but God can Now, notice that. Notice that humility right there. I mean, how often, when you know what the right thing is to do and someone comes to you, do you say, oh, I can tell you, but how often do you say, no, I can't, but God can? I just thought that really stuck out to me that Joseph's like, I can't do that, but God can. God can interpret your dreams. And so he tells them the dreams, and for the cupbearer, it turns out very well. Baker, not so well. But for the cupbearer, in three days, what's going to happen is that he says he's going to return and he's going to come back to the king in three days. And he's going to be restored. And the baker, in three days, is going to be killed. And it turned out exactly as Joseph had said. But he told the cupbearer before he left. He didn't tell the baker, because he knew what was going to happen with the baker. But he told the cupbearer, he said, when you go back, will you please tell the pharaoh about me? Tell him that I'm not from here. That I've been jailed in, with injustice. I'm not supposed to be here. I didn't do anything wrong. Will you please... Remember me to the king when you get there. And so when the cupbearer goes, he forgot all about him. Chapter 41, two years later. So Joseph has to stay in jail for two more years after this. I mean, at what point is Joseph, and it doesn't share that, but you know it happened because he's a normal person, where he's like, seriously, God, where are you? You, you let me interpret these dreams. I know you're moving. I'm trusting in you. My life is with you. And yet, I'm still in jail. 13 years. At this point, two years later, when Pharaoh has his dream, Joseph has been sold into slavery and been in jail for 13 years. And he's done nothing wrong up to this point except being 17 and sharing a vision with his boys that he shouldn't have shared. Doesn't seem very fair, does it? And yet God was with him through this entire time. Now, at this point, Joseph would really have liked the cupbearer to share for him to get out. And it would have gone well for Joseph. It would have been good for him to get out of jail, right? But it wouldn't have been as good for him. Not only in his circumstances, but it wouldn't have been good for him personally. And on top of that, it wouldn't have been good 
for the people of Egypt. He would have benefited, but not the people of Egypt and not his brothers and not his family. And he would have never seen them again. And not only would he have never seen his family again, but he wouldn't be able to save their lives as he's going to do. If he hadn't have gone through all of this, the good that's going to happen later would not have happened. Because what happens is, is his family comes. I'm sorry, let's, let's go back even farther. So the Pharaoh comes. He has a bad dream. And the cupbearer's like, hey, I knew this guy in jail once. So they bring out Joseph. He listens to it. And the, and the Pharaoh says, so I heard you can interpret dreams. And he says, I can't, but God can. And so he interprets the dream for him. And he says, what's going to happen is there's going to be seven years of amazing harvest. And then there's going to be seven years of the worst famine we've ever had. Because that's the way it happens in this part of the world. There's, it goes in long seasons. And he says, so my recommendation is to you, Pharaoh. This is 30-year-old Joseph coming out of jail. You should probably get someone to save all of the food for those seven years so that you'll have enough for you and for others afterwards. And the Pharaoh says, hmm, goes to his his counsel and says, what do you guys think? This sounds like a great idea. And they go, it sounds like a great idea. So they come back and they say, who else should we get other than him? I mean, he seems so wise. Let's have him do it. So he goes from being in jail for 13 years to now being overseeing everything. He's right next to the Pharaoh. There's Pharaoh and then Joseph, and he oversees everything for all of Egypt. Talk about a turnaround, like boom, like that. And in that, Seven years down the road, then the famine starts. And so now Joseph has been in charge. He's now 37 years old. This is 20 years, 20 years being separated from the family, 20 years never having, never having peace of what happened to him. You know how you have issues from your past? Joseph has got to have some issues here, right? abandoned by his brothers, and probably wondering, did my dad even go looking for me? Did anybody care? Did my dad really think out? Did he really love me like he said he did? All of those issues have got to be rising to the surface. Well, now the famine hits, and out in Israel, out where the, the people of God, Joseph, Joseph is like, Jacob, his dad, they don't have any food. He's like, you got to go to Egypt, because they have all the food. Someone over there in Egypt has been saving their food. We can go buy from them. We have money. We just don't have grain. So brothers, go. And they sent all the other 10 except for the youngest, Benjamin, the number 12. Remember, Joseph was 11, and then his real brother, not stepbrother, but full-on brother, stayed back. They all went. And they come, and when they come before Joseph, they don't recognize him. Probably because I'm guessing he had all the Egyptian stuff going on. And it's 20 years later. So chapter 42, verse 6. Joseph's brothers came and bowed down before him with their faces to the ground. The moment Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them even though nearly 20 years had passed since he last saw them. It happened. The vision he had at 17, it was legit. God was with him then just like he is now. But again, I look back at this situation, I'm thinking, really, God, is this the way it had to go? Couldn't it have been? I mean, we all have our plans for how we think our life should go, right? You have your goals, your, your financial goals, your educational goals, 
where you want to live, where you want a vacation, how your health should be, how many kids you should have, what they're supposed to accomplish. We have it all figured out. But as we've all realized, this world is not a safe place, meaning it doesn't go the way we think it should go. There's sin involved. There's also just natural circumstances. And yet God is involved in all of that. There's a word in the New Testament um, that I want us to hold on to right now. I want to take us a little detour because I don't know anyone with character who hasn't suffered or gone through distress or hasn't gone through difficulty. The most amazing people that you know, think of who they are in your life, guaranteed life did not go the way they planned because God uses the neutral adverse circumstances or even at time, what man intended for harm, he will take that and use it for good. He will take abuse and use it for good. He will take natural disasters and use them for good. He will take just detours of what we think we should do, but it goes somewhere else, and he will use that for good if we will surrender to him. The word... Uh, in the New Testament means distress, hard times, suffering, affliction, or adversity. And one of the verses that um, I thought I knew has become much more real to me. It's Romans 5, 3, and 4. And this is what Paul says. This is Paul writing to the people in Rome. This is Paul who's been in jail multiple times, who's been beaten, stoned, shipwrecked, thrown off a ship, He says this, he says, more than that, we rejoice in our sufferings. There's that word, that word that means distress, hard times, suffering, affliction, adversity, adversity. but Paul says we rejoice. Now, it doesn't mean he's happy about it, but still, seriously, rejoice? Yay! No, it doesn't mean yay, it means, okay, I've gone through this before. I know what comes out the other end, I'll take it. And so Paul says we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. Do you know that? He knows, he says, we know that it does this. How does he know it? Because he's been through it. Again, later, um, can you put that up here? The, there's a, should be another verse right after that. James says this, count it all joy, my brothers. Again, count it all joy when you meet various trials. Can you imagine him saying this to Joseph when he was 17? But it makes a lot more sense now when Joseph is 37. Count it all joy, my brethren, when you meet various trials or a period of process of trials or testing or temptation or enticement. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness or endurance. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. When we go through this suffering, when we go through these difficulties, we become bigger. What if Joseph stayed the the way he was when he was 17? What if he stayed the way he was when he was seven years later when he was in jail? What, What if he never grew? And what if he had gotten out of that situation and he wasn't put in the position to not only save his own family, 
but to save all the people of Egypt. When you think of your suffering, when you think of your distress, when you think of your adversity, when you think of your loss, what if that will not only grow you, but bless others? Because God does not leave us in our adversity. He does not leave us in our suffering. He walks with us. God will never leave us nor forsake us. And that's how we can look at Joseph. And I want you to hear what Joseph says when his brothers finally get to the point where they apologize to him. And they realize, what the heck have we done? And they've had to deal with it. It's not like this is the first time they came to this conclusion. Oh man, we probably shouldn't have done that. They knew it right after it happened. And it walked with them and they were in anguish over it. And in chapter 50 of Genesis 19, it says this. Joseph looks at his brothers and says, don't be afraid. Am I to judge instead of God? How do you do that? How do you look at someone that has wronged you and then say, who am I to judge you for wronging me? What has happened in this man to grow him to that point? The suffering, the distress. God has been with him for a grand purpose and is not only accomplishing that purpose outside of him, but accomplishing it inside of him to the point that he can come with such mercy to his brothers and say, am I to judge instead of God? It's not my place. Even though you intended to harm me, God intended it only for good. And through me, he preserved the lives of countless people as he is still doing today. Well, so I read this book from about Hannah Everton, and when I read it, um, she was still in jail, because it was 2013. Well, a few months ago, through a lot of appeals and everything, she was finally released, completely released. And they realized she had a very poor um, defense, lawyers. Uh, there was also some wrongdoing in the prosecution, they found out, some withholding of evidence, and, and they found this was, this was bad. But she had to stay in jail for eight years. And in the midst of this, they had these letters that she would write to her church. And um, she would write them periodically. And, and this one was while she was still in jail back in 2012. And I want to close with this. Because I want us to think, what if we were to, to embrace our distress? Embrace our loss. And say, Lord, not my will be done, but yours be done. Those aren't my words. Those are the words of Christ, who, although being a very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he humbled himself to be a servant and went to the cross. And on the night that he was betrayed, as he was there praying before the Lord, he said, will you please let this pass from me? He went praying, saying, God, I don't want to go through this. Just like Joseph, just like Hannah, I don't want to go through this, but... Not my will be done, but yours be done. We all have that choice to make. We all have that choice to make to say, are we going to surrender and let God's will be done? Are we going to try to take control or hand the control to someone else here on earth who we think can fix our distress? Or are we going to say, God, I don't want this, and I'm still going to work like Joseph did to get out of this situation. But ultimately, my trust is in you, that you know what's best for me, and that you're going to use me for your purposes to bless others. Are you willing to do that? Are you willing to surrender? Or will you abandon your faith? You can still be a Christian and yet not trust God. 
which means you're abandoning your faith. To have faith means to trust, to completely put all of your life into his hands. And this is Hannah while she's in jail showing us what that looks like. Because you can hear Paul talk about it. Oh, Paul, yeah, he's a fancy guy. He's the Bible guy. This is Hannah Overton while she's in jail writing. She says, as I left to come here, jail, I was blessed to hear from so many how God has worked through this in their lives. I'm brought to tears as I think of how dramatically he's changed so many lives. I can't wait till we can all rejoice and share all he's done. I received letters of how God has touched people through my life, quoting 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 4, as lived out before them. Quote, this is from 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those who are in trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves have been comforted by God. She says, I was completely overwhelmed and honored. Please continue to pray for these. She's talking about the people in jail because she's ministering to all the people in jail. Please continue to pray for these as they continue to grow in the Lord, including those still searching and watching that they see the truth. And then she quotes from Philippians 1.6, being confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in them will be faithful to complete it. And then she finishes by saying this, and I want us to hear this, because as, a, as the people of God, not just branches, but all of the people of God in the other churches, if we were to live this way, we can bring change to the world through our sufferings. She says, yesterday, I was able to visit with Pastor Rod, her, church in, her pastor in Corpus Christi, and he shared with me some of the amazing things that God has done in this community through this. Listen to this. God has stepped in and brought about big change, not only in Corpus, but throughout the world in people's lives. God has and will continue to use our story of his faithfulness when glory meets our suffering, as the Mercy Me song puts it, in ways beyond our comprehension. He is awesome. And then she finishes with this verse, Romans 8, 28. He works all things out for good, for those who love the Lord and are called according to his purposes. She says, I may not know what the future holds, but I know who holds my future, and I can trust him. Will you please stand with me and pray? Father, will you help us to fully understand what Romans 8.28 says? And I know we can't understand it immediately. There's no way Joseph could understand it at 17. There's no way I can understand it at 45. But continue to grow us that we can know that you work all things out for good and give us that trust and that impatience. Help us to remember the moments that have grown us so that we can look to you, Lord, and trust that this endurance will build character and this character will build hope. Use us. Grow us. We don't want to go through what Joseph did. We want, don't want to go through some of the losses that we're dealing with now, but we surrender to you, Lord. We surrender control to you and ask that your will be done. 
your kingdom come. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.